right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. So glad you could be with us. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend three weeks looking at three major cities uh, in the Bible where Christianity uh, not only flourished, but really the question we're going to ask ourselves is why did Christianity flourish uh, in these cities? Historically, why has Christianity grown in cities uh, more than really anywhere else in the world? And that should be a little bit surprising to you. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me. For me, I didn't really grow up uh, going to church very often, and I grew up sort of assuming that Christianity was largely a white, rural, southern, ignorant faith. Um, I even remember, so I grew up in Virginia, and I grew up pretty close to a city, and I remember going and visiting my relatives who, like, they were really religious. They lived out in the farmland of southern Virginia, and they were super religious. I'm talking like going to church multiple times every week, religious. I'm talking on holidays, they're going to church multiple times on the same day, religious. And their difference in lifestyle between ours and theirs was not convicting whatsoever. It was like, you guys live in the middle of nowhere. You get excited about the new Walmart that's opening up 45 minutes away from your house. And so you go to church all the time because, like, what else is it you're going to do other than go to church? So it wasn't convicting whatsoever. But I remember after I became a Christian when I was 18, um, learning about the history of the church and seeing that uh, the church and the Christian faith flourished in urban environments, urban, cosmopolitan hipster-dense, craft coffee-filled, craft brewery-overwhelmed, cosmopolitan, progressive, urban environments more than anywhere else in the world. And it totally blew me away. Like, why is that? Why would that be the case? Because I always assumed the exact opposite was the case. Now, the answer to that question is really going to be the entirety of what we do uh, this morning and the following two weeks uh, as well. So I hope you'll join us for the entirety of this. But to kind of give away maybe the answer from the very beginning, here's what I really believe. Kind of the heart of what we're going to see is that what brought many of you to Denver, what what keeps many of you in Denver, these fundamental longings of the human heart, ultimately find their satisfaction in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's really interesting because a lot of times people look at cities and they see the things that characterize cities like ours. Like, I was reading a study this past week about Denver, and it was talking about how Denver is one of the least church, most unlikely places to see Christianity flourish and prosper. And it gives all sorts of reasons for this. It points to, for example, how we are crazy sexually active. In fact, how Denver is the most sexually active city in the entire country. And everybody kind of looks at that and says, like, hey, look at this. Like, these people are so sexually active, they would never want anything to do with a Christian faith that has traditional morals or values. And for me, having done life in the city and loving the city so much, like, what I see is not a city that's, like, completely hostile to the gospel because we have sex all the time, but instead a city filled with men and women longing for companionship and belonging and to know others and to be known by others and the expression a lot of times isn't the healthiest thing and many of you are on the other side of that and you're here because it hasn't fulfilled that longing for belonging that you've carried for years upon years or a lot of times people point to how denver is this crazy intellectual and skeptical city how we are one of the most educated cities in the entirety of the world and says look like it's filled with all these skeptics and seekers and because of that, Christianity can never flourish and grow here. And what I see is not a city full of men and women who are intellectually hostile to the truth claims of Christianity, but men and women who are, men and women who are seeking complex que- uh, answers to complex questions about life. And I don't see people who are going to reject Christianity on the surface. They just want truth. And over and over again, I see these men and women who flock to the city and stay in the city 
because their fundamental longings have not been satisfied where they grew up. That's what brought many of you here to the city of Denver. And what I really believe with my whole heart, I'll just kind of put my cards on the table at the very beginning, is that St. Augustine centuries ago was right, that God has created you for himself, and your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. And what you're going to get as we walk through this city, or walk through this series, are three cities that give you a tangible glimpse into how the gospel fills the deepest longings of the human heart, and ultimately how this faith is for your joy. Now, this morning, what we're going to look at, the first city we're going to look at is a city called Athens. It's probably a city that all of you have heard of before. It was referred to historically by the Greek philosopher Ovid as learned Athens. It was a magnet that attracted all of the intellectually curious, seeking people of the region around it. And men and women flocked to the city to have complex questions answered. That's what brought many of you to Denver. You were not content with the overly simplistic answers that were given to life's most complex questions where you grew up. And you looked at the city and you saw its progressiveness and you saw its open-mindedness and you saw its intellectual diversity and then you thought to yourself, this might be a safe place for me to find the answers I've been looking for. Athens was no different. And it was full of men and women who meet this man named Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the first pastors, who walks into the city and starts making claims about Christianity. People say, we want to hear more about this. And what Paul drops is a five-fold truth bomb that changes everybody in its presence. And here's what I really believe, is I think that for some of you, it'll change you as well. And so very simple, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through one of the most famous speeches in all of history. And Paul is going to make five truth claims about your life and the work of God in your life that I think really will change some of you when you get on the other end of this. So let's dive right in. Uh, It'll be helpful if you follow along. We'll have some of the most important verses that we're looking at on the screen as well. So five fairly simple, straightforward truths about God and his relationship to you. You ready for this? One. The first claim that Paul makes in this speech that we just heard is that we all naturally worship. We all naturally worship. So look at this, verse 22, it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was this hill uh, in Athens where philosophers and scholars would gather together and sort of, it was almost like a marketplace of ideas where different theories were presented and put forth and they would hear from one another they would determine which one is best. They basically said, Paul, your claims that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave are viable enough that we want to hear more about this. So Paul is sharing, and hear, hear what he says at the very beginning. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's really interesting. So Paul walks in and the very first observation he makes about this culture and really human nature as a whole is that we have a natural propensity to worship. A lot of you in this room, you might think like, oh, I'm religious or I'm not very religious. Paul says that's the wrong question. You should not be asking, do I worship or not? But as a worshiper, who or what receives my worship? The fundamental posture of the human heart is to worship. We'll come back to that, but look at how he makes this observation. Verse 23, he says, For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What scholars believe is that Paul entered into Athens from the northwest corner through a kind of a marketplace called the Agora, and it was lined. The path into the city was literally lined with various idols and statues. And as Paul studies the city, he sees reflected the fundamental posture of the human heart. It's no different today than it was back in Athens that we all have the propensity to worship something. And the question you should be asking yourself is not, am I religious, but to what end does my religion go? Now, already, like, I feel like this truth claim shouldn't be very difficult for us to argue with, because from a pure statistical standpoint, like, Paul is right. Like, in our own country, which everybody's, like, saying, oh, there's, like, the death of religion, uh, still, within a poll taken a few years ago by the Pew Research Center, um, 98% of Americans identify themselves as believing in God or some form of God or some expression of a higher power. So only 2%, 2% of our population as a country would say that they're atheists, and even a significant percentage of that 2% actually still believe in God, which I don't really get that. Um, it seems like those kind of things would be at odds with one another, but that's what the Pew Research Center said. So already, it's kind of like pure statistics to say, like, okay, Paul's right. Like, we have this fundamental posture towards being religious, but I want you to press it deeper because it's not just enough to think like, oh yeah, like, what did my parents raise me to believe? Like, we want you to go much deeper to that and think the ends to which your worship goes. I, I saw like a really incredible example of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to NPR, and uh, they were interviewing this guy who maybe like 10 or 15 years ago um, was setting up his caller ID, and he was working with the phone company, and they were asking him, like, uh, what name do you want to show, have show up when you make inbound calls? So like, we call people, what name do you want to have show up on their caller ID? And he says, Willie Nelson. And uh, the phone company's like, you can't do that. You can't just, like, pick the name of a random celebrity and do that. And he's like, uh, my roommate's name is Willie Nelson. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we can't do anything about it. And so that's the way it showed up, was Willie Nelson. Now, here's what was really interesting is this guy, his number was publicly listed, and consequently, all these people started to think, like, this is the real Willie Nelson. And so he was, he, I was listening to this interview with him, and he was saying, like, what blew him away was, one, like, I started to re receive hundreds of voicemails from people thinking they're leaving a voicemail for the real Willie Nelson. Uh, he said, that surprised me, and he even played a lot of them, and he said, here's what was really surprising to me, was not only that these complete strangers would leave unbelievably intimate personal requests and details of their lives for a complete stranger they don't know anything about. But here's what he said the, on NPR. Okay, this was not like a Christian station. He says, what blew me away the, blew me away the most were these, was these people's propensity to worship a complete stranger. He's like, it just totally blew me away. Like, these people were worshiping somebody they didn't know anything about other than, like, he smokes too much weed and he makes mediocre country music. Um, yeah. Easy, okay? Easy. Settle down. Back. Okay. But these people, like, had this fundamental posture in their heart to, like, leave these intimate, personal requests for a complete stranger. He was blown away by the fundamental human posture of worship. And this shouldn't really blow you away that much. I mean, think about this in your own life. I mean, why is it that there has been somebody in your life that the vast majority of you, you have been willing to sacrifice anything for? And I'm not talking like a spouse. I'm talking about like somebody you dated. And if you're just honest, like it was a really unhealthy relationship. But you would sacrifice time, money, friendships, jobs, family, where you lived, anything 
to make it work out. And when it didn't work out, you weren't like, oh, you know, that's like really disappointing. No, you were crushed. You were left wondering, like, do I want to go on living? Like, why is it that for many of you, your job will architect your entire life? Like, it will determine where you live and what you give yourself to and your joy and whether you're up or you're down, the way you treat your family and your kids. Like, why is that? Why, why is it that for some of you, um, you're married, typically, this is to men, you're married to men who, when their favorite sports team loses, like, it ruins everything. Like, I'm talking, you have to cheer them up like a small child who just, like, dropped their last cookie or something like that. <laughs> like, and I'm speaking from experience. Like, my wife, this is me and my wife. I don't do this for my wife. She does this for me all the time. Like, why is this? It's because you and I, we have mere, more than mere interest in things. We have a propensity to worship. And it's like we can't turn that off in our hearts, even if we don't consider ourselves particularly religious. And I think Paul is right. Now, it's interesting because the second claim he makes is that not only has God uh, created us to worship, but God is pursuing us so that we worship rightly. So it's not just enough to believe, but it's, we have to believe rightly. And so what's, what Paul says then is God actively pursues you for a relationship. God actively pursues you for a relationship. Look at what he says next in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, this is really interesting. Notice the intimacy that he is saying that God has in these people's lives. It's really interesting because we see earlier in this passage, we didn't hit on this, but Paul is speaking to an audience uh, primarily of Epicureans and of Stoics, and they would have had two very different views of who God is, but they're pretty similar to the way a lot of people in our culture view God. On one extreme, you had people that were, like, we would call them pantheists. They believed that God was in everything. He's kind of this impersonal life life force that was in everything, uh, basically the movie Avatar. Some of you saw Avatar, and you were like, that makes a lot of sense. That's who I think God is. That is not a good idea to take your <laughs> views of the universal ways that God works from, uh, was it Steven Spielberg who directed that, or whoever it was? James Cameron, thank you. Um, to that extreme, him too. Um, at the other extreme, you not only do you have that, but you also have these people who said, like, we're not sure if there's a God, and if there is a God, he's not involved in the, people, in the affairs of the world. He's, he's not an impersonal life force, but he's kind of like a creator who stands far away. He's basically like a, a watchmaker who creates a watch, he winds it up, and he lets it run its course. And it's interesting, a lot of you think of God that way as well. He doesn't kind of get involved in the issues of your life, and yeah, he maybe made the world, but he doesn't care about your struggles this week. And Paul comes and and offers this incredibly unique and different view in terms of who God is. You see this? He says, God determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place. He determined when you would live. He determined where you would live, all for the sake of, look at verse 27, for one chief purpose, that they, and you could say you, that you would seek God and perhaps feel your way toward him and find him. What Paul is saying is that God is not an impersonal life force that is in everything. And that God is not a cold, distant deity who just creates the watch and lets it run its course. That God is a person, that God is a father who pursues, and he pursues for the sake of relationship in the entirety of your life from when you were born to where you live to what you've experienced that led you to this room in this moment right now. 
has been him writing a sovereign story that is meant to find its conclusion in you worshiping, believing, and relating to him. And I'll tell you, for me personally, like this has, like I became a dad this past year, and so like for me, I feel like this has become so much more real to me, um, particularly like I'm not just a dad, I'm an adoptive dad, so my wife and I, we chose to adopt, and we chose to adopt internationally, so our daughter is from Taiwan, and I feel like one of the unique things about adoption is that every story of adoption is a story of an extreme pursuit, like there's no other way around it. The last two years of our lives before our daughter came home were centered around nothing but pursuing this child was on the other side of the world. I remember almost a year ago from today, um, we knew that our daughter, Hannah, was ours, and uh, we get this phone call being told, and this is just the way international adoptions go, we get this phone call telling us the laws in Taiwan are about to change in relation to adoption, and if we don't have paperwork into the Taiwanese courts in 48 hours, we could lose her for an indefinite period of time, maybe forever. You know what my wife and I did? We were like, well, you know, that's just the way it goes. No, of course we didn't do that. <laughs> We were like, she's ours, and it's our responsibility to pursue her, and we will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to win her back to ourselves. So I got on a plane within 24 hours of getting that phone call, and I got paperwork into the Taiwanese courts, and now she's home. And it's funny, whenever I tell that story, like, people are always blown away, like, man, like, it's incredible that you guys would, like, buy a flight to Asia in 24 hours' notice. Like, wasn't that expensive? Yeah, it was expensive. But that's what a loving dad does. He pursues no matter the cost. And what I even learned from that experience is that our own story of a two-year pursuit to win this daughter to ourselves is a mere shadow of the larger gospel story of God doing whatever it takes to win you to himself. Your entire life has been a story written for you to relate to him and to be known by him and to be loved by him and to be forgiven by him. And it's crazy to me when people are like, wow, that was so expensive to buy a flight to Asia in 24 hours of notice. It's like, no, like, that is a mere shadow of the cost that God will take upon himself. You think like a, a flight is expensive? God laid down his own life in his son, Jesus Christ. Like the ultimate price was paid by Jesus where he not only gave money to win you, he gave himself. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a fairly well-known philosopher and author, he said that... Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, you know, my whole life I thought I was living a quest when really what I was experiencing was a pursuit, and I was the one being pursued. And I feel like that captures this, what Paul's saying here so well, because a lot of you, you know, you flock to Denver, and you choose to live here, and you stay here, and we love hiking mountains, and we kind of like, yeah, like, life is, you know, hiking a mountain is kind of like hiking through life, and it's this great experience, and I'm just kind of figuring out my own path, and like, I love you, but that's wrong. Like, your life is not a journey or a great adventure. It is a great pursuit, and you are the one being, a pers- being pursued, and God has already done what it takes for him to win you back to himself, and he is waiting for you to respond. That's what Paul's saying. You think about everything that has led to you being in this room right now, and it is not chance, it is not accident, it is not coincidence. It is the sovereign hand of a loving father. He's pursuing you. Now Paul goes on, and he says, the front door then into that relationship, so God is pursuing you for relationship, the front door into that relationship is repentance. 
is repentance. When we say repentance, we just mean turning away from your sin, turning to Jesus. And what Paul kind of offers here is sort of a bad news, good news scenario, and we'll hit both. You see it in verses 30 through 31. We'll do it in reverse order. So we'll do bad news first. I always like to do it this way. You want bad news? Good. Okay, give me the bad news. Okay, then give me the good news. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Verse 31 gives the bad news. So he says that God, so when he finds us, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And so here's the thing, is what, what Paul is saying is God is not just a father, but he is a just father. He is a, a holy father. A lot of times people try to kind of juxtapose the love of God and the justice of God against one another. No, it's just, that's the fullness of who he is. It's the fullness of his character. He's not just a dad. He's not just an apathetic dad. He's a good dad. He's a just dad. He's a holy dad. And as a consequence, he will judge us. Now, growing up, not really going to church for me, I never thought that was that big of a deal. I would see people outside of sporting events yelling about God's judgment. I would hear people on TV talking about God's judgment. And for me, I'd be like, well, what's really the big deal? Like, I'm better than most people. And so I think I'm good. Like, the whole heaven hell thing, like, man, like, I'm way better than that dude who did not pick up the poop after his dog. Like, I'm way better than that guy who brought 25 items into the 10 items that were last lane at Whole Foods. I'm way better than all those people. I can tell you all sorts of people that I'm better than. And so if God's kind of picking heaven and hell versus like, you know, in the same way that, you know, like we picked dodgeball teams back in middle school, like, man, I'm like towards the front of the line in terms of getting picked. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But judgment, that's not that big of a deal. The problem is what Paul says here is he won't just judge, but he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that man being Jesus, whom he has appointed. And so the standard by which God judges is a man, the only man in human history who is perfect. And all of us, no matter what we believe, can immediately say, well, nobody's perfect well, other than Jesus, and he's the one man that I am judged by, and as a consequence, I should despair because I don't measure up, and I fail, and I'm condemned. But it's not just bad news, there's good news. Because look at what Paul says in verse 30 before this. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now here's why this is really good news. It's because what Paul is saying is, on one hand, the bad news is, is that nobody measures up. Nobody is good enough to get into heaven. But the good news is, the qualification in order to enter into a relationship with God and consequently go to heaven is not you proving how good you are, but confessing that you're not good enough and you consequently need salvation and a savior. And the front door into the relationship with God is your repentance. It is not you bringing a spiritual resume of look how good I am and look how much I've done and look how I was baptized and look at all the things I've believed and look how long I've been part of the church and look how much money I give away. Those things aren't bad. They simply won't save you. What saves you is the Savior. And what qualifies you for the work of the Savior is you confessing your need for salvation. That is the work of repentance. And it's tremendously good news because it means that all of us can be qualified for salvation. On one hand, like Christianity is the most remarkably inclusive faith on the face of the world. It blows me away because it's like you don't have to be a certain age, you don't have to make a certain amount of money, you don't have to be a certain race, you don't have to be a certain class. Like all you have to do is be bad and admit that you're not good. But it's remarkably exclusive because very few of us finally come to the end of ourselves and confess our need for salvation. And we make so much money, and we have so many friends, and we have so many experiences, and we self-medicate through so many drugs that we dull ourselves, 
and we distort reality and make ourselves feel much better than we actually are. What Paul is saying is the bad news is really bad. We are far worse than we ever imagined, but the good news is incredibly good. That we are more loved in Christ than we could ever imagine as well. And the front door into the Christian faith is confessing that we need a Savior in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that leads us to the fourth claim that Paul's going to make, is that God gives us intellectual assurance that this is true. And so I love this, because Paul's speaking in this incredibly academic, educated environment, and he's not just like, you know, in our culture, a lot of times it's like, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and it's nothing more than kind of like, I want to believe it, and so it's true. Paul's like, no, that's not smart, and this needs to be rooted in real, objective, verifiable history. There are things about faith that are true. There are things about faith that aren't true. And it needs to be rooted in history, which is why, this is my favorite line, maybe this entire speech, Paul says, and of this, of all of this, of everything I've said up to this point, God has given assurance to all, so to everyone, even you in this room, by raising Jesus from the dead. So what Paul is saying is, all of this is true, not just because like, it's a cool tradition that you were raised in, and it's true. He's saying this is true because God has given a true, intellectual, verifiable truth claim that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and in the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter, there's the tangible, cognitive assurance that this whole thing is not just make-believe or superstition or a way to make you feel better about a cruel, hard world. There's so many implications of the resurrection, but this is the one I want to focus in on. It's one that Paul actually draws out over and over and over again. What we've claimed to believe true can be verified to be true. In fact, elsewhere, uh, Paul writes to another incredibly progressive city called Corinth. It's pretty crazy. Um, He says this about the resurrection. He says, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, the line I want you to focus in on there is when he says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, it's interesting because when Paul wrote this, he wrote this about 20 years removed from when the resurrection claimed to have happened. Now, for a lot of you in this room, we're a pretty young church, and so a lot of you aren't even 20 yet. And so you're like, oh my gosh, 20 years. Like, a lot of things can be distorted in 20 years. How do we know it's true? 20, like, 20 years is more than a lifetime for many of you. But 20 years is really not that long. Does anybody know what the number one song was 20 years ago? Uh, 1995, I, I guess April of 1995. This is how we do it. <laughs> Who can sing it with me? This is how we do it. And then what comes next? This is how we do it. Yeah, this is how we do it. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, was 20 years that long ago? Who can remember like really specific things from 20 years ago? Anybody can remember really specific things 20 years ago? Like even like a random song that's, that's a lot better than Willie Nelson. I, I really like that song. All of you are like, yeah, like you're not hearing anything else I say after this right now. So like 20 years is not that removed for you to remember something. And not only that, it's not that long for you to remember something as astounding as like a man rising from the grave. Like the reality is, is if you're trying to kind of create this giant uh, conspiracy, tricking people into believing, what you don't do is root it in a ton of other eyewitnesses who are still around being able to be verified 
as to whether or not this happened or not. I mean, think about this in your own life. If I said, hey, you remember back in the, uh, you know, April 1995, we were walking through that graveyard and that dude rose from the grave? If I said that and I, it was just me, you'd be like, what are you smoking? Right? Like, you wouldn't believe me. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, I'm sure that happened. You're like, you are crazy. Leave me alone. But if, if I said to you, hey, did you know that back in, the April, of, in April of 1995, I was walking through this graveyard, and this dude, he rose from the grave, and he started talking about who God is, and like, it wasn't just me, but there's actually 500 other people there as well, and most of them are still alive, and you go talk to them, ask them if it really happened or not. Like, the only reason I would say that is because it's true. And if it wasn't true, it would immediately be disproved as a myth. You see, when Paul, when he writes here, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What he's saying is this is this outrageous and verifiable truth claim, and basically it immediately dies if it's not true, or it immediately turns the world upside down if it is. And the story of history since the day of the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter has been cities being turned upside down for the glory of God because it is true. That it's something more than just like make-believe. That it's something more than just like, well, this makes me feel better about my life. That it's rooted in real history, just the way anything else is that we claim to be true. Which then, okay, so let's recap everything because it brings us to our final point. So we believe that God has created us to worship, and not only worship, but to worship him, to worship him in a relationship. The front door into that relationship is not proving how good we are, but confessing that we need a savior is our repentance. And all of this is not mere make-believe or cultural, like, yeah, like my parents believe this, so I believe this as well. Instead, it's rooted in real, objectable, uh, objective, verifiable history. Which all of this then leads us to the fifth claim that Paul makes, a response is required. It's really interesting. The way this story ends is beautiful because everybody that's listening, they all respond in the same way anybody in human history has ever responded. What you see is all of us this morning have a way to respond to all of this in one of three simple ways. The first is this, is you can reject. You see this in verse 32. Some people reject it. So if you reject Christianity, you are not progressive, you are not new, you're not like, oh, nobody's ever thought about doing this. Like, people were doing this back in the first century, okay? Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some were like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and that's the way you would think as well. Like, you got dragged here, and you're trying to tell your mom I went to church on Easter Sunday, and you want nothing to do with this whatsoever, and that's totally fine. Like, we're really glad that you're here. But if that is you, here's what I would say to you. I would say, not only can you reject, but I would push you to have a good reason to reject. Like, you can't just not believe because you don't want to believe. You know what that's called? That's called blind faith. And that's the very thing you accuse me of. Our faith is rooted in real history. And for you, you've got to give a good reason for rejecting. You can't just say, like, oh, well, you know, like, all those people hallucinated when they saw Jesus resurrect from the grave. Like, what do you smoke for 500 people to have a shared hallucinatory experience? What drug is that? You say it's a hoax. You know what? Like, I've never met anybody who, like, will go to jail for a lie. The thing about those 500 people is, like, not only do they see this, but most of them were put to death for believing this. And they were crucified 
and they were burned, and they were tortured, and they were murdered, going to their graves. Like, I know it would be easier for me to recant, so you let me live, but like, I know what I saw. I saw a man conquer the grave, and as a consequence, I will go to my grave knowing that he has conquered the grave for me as well. So you have to have a good reason. You can't just not believe because you don't believe. You know, there's a long line of people not believing. You see it right here. Some people, they didn't just reject. Some people wanted to hear more. And so what you see next, others said, we will hear you about this again. And so some of you are checking out what it is that we're doing, and you don't have enough evidence yet, or you're kind of like on the fence, and you're trying to kind of like, okay, I'm not sure. That's totally fine. Like, you can come as many times as you want, and we'll give you our best, and you can explore this, okay? You don't have to make a decision like right this moment. You're, you're not like milk that's going to expire in a week if like, you, take your time. Take your time. God is writing your story. He is sovereign over your life. And he has drawn you this far, and what I really believe is he will draw you all the way. But third, some believed. If you look at verse 34, it says, But some men joined him, that being Paul, and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There are men and women there present for Paul's speech, the same one that you've heard now as well. And they said, well, I'm definitely not rejecting, and I don't need to hear anymore. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to turn away and repent of my sin and turn away from playing God of my own life. And I'm ready to turn to Jesus and to believe that he died for my sins, believe that he resurrected over the grave, and I'm going to give my life to following him. And I might not even have all my questions answered, but I have enough answer to know that it's time for me to believe and follow him. And I really believe that some of you want to make that decision this morning as well. That you probably came here because it's like the traditional thing to do to come to church on Easter. And God has drawn you to press you into finally entering into a relationship with himself. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you an action step for responding in belief. I'm going to pray first because before I just kind of like give instructions and tell you what to do, I want to challenge you to maybe take the next 30 seconds, a minute, to really open yourself up to doing whatever it means to respond and to believe and to give your life to this, okay? So I'm going to pray. And I'm, as I'm praying, like I'm asking God to move in and through your life for you to respond rightly. So let's pray, and then I'll kind of give you steps from here. God, I thank you so much. Um, I thank you for the men and women who have filled this room. I thank you that um, you are a good God who pursues these sons and daughters, no matter the cost, even if it means the death of Jesus in their place. And more than anything, I just really pray that there would be men and women here who would finally start to see their story through that lens. That's not to trivialize or minimize the heartbreak and the pain. The, the city is full 
brokenness. And so we're not trying to say like everything has been rosy, but what we are saying is that everything can be redeemed. And through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you've not only died for these men and women, but you have resurrected for them. And as a consequence, you are alive and changing lives today. And so I pray that even as we respond and give an opportunity for people to respond in belief, um, that we would do so, whether it's like we believe for the first time in our childhood and are now just remembering the goodness of the gospel again, whether like we walked into this room totally just coming for the pie afterwards and like you realize like this is a real thing and it's meant to change me and impact me and architect, I'm meant to architect my life around this. And so God, through your spirit, move and uh, help people respond rightly. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.